My name is Jason. Um, it's good to be with you tonight. So when I've been asked about this sermon series, I haven't told people that it's about the last four things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I've told them it's about hope. Many of us, uh, I think, when we think about death, judgment, heaven, and hell, uh, I think for many of us, our, my suspicion is that we probably only think about one of those things with any hope at all. Death, judgment, heaven, hell. And it's possible that for many of us, even the topic of heaven doesn't fill us with much hope. And so this is our challenge, to respond to the hope that we have offered in Jesus Christ, even and especially in death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And tonight we're looking at Jesus' teaching on judgment, and you should know nobody talks about judgment more than Jesus. Uh, Christians, you just stick with me tonight. Uh, this feels, I just need to confess, there's a degree of of compassion and concern that I have that this isn't in my notes so you can all pray for how long this is going to take um, <clears throat> there's a degree of compassion and concern that I have that so few of us probably um, hear many teachings or many decent teachings on these topics um, for many of us I think there are rumors of rumors some of us have experienced this but for many of us when I ask about the churches that you've been a part of you know, in Knoxville and Franklin and Memphis and Chattanooga and those places, I, I don't actually hear like hellfire and brimstone things, but I know that there's rumors of rumors of those things, and I think there's been a recoil against even the idea of that, and so we just don't even talk about these things, you know? Um, and so I just feel a degree of compassion and concern that this may be one of the few times you hear a teaching on this thing, and so um, buckle up, take some notes, open up your Bible, Matthew chapter 25, here we go. Christians throughout history um, have understood judgment as a future historic event. There will come a time when Jesus comes in glory in the clouds. We see this language in the prophets, all over the gospel accounts, in Paul's letters, in Peter's letters, in the vision of John, which we call Revelation. All of history is going to culminate in a moment where everyone is gathered before God. All nations, all people, the living and the dead, Christians, non-Christians, standing in judgment before God. This is called Judgment Day, or often it's just called the Day or the Great Day. Some Bible translations might even capitalize the letter D in the word just to help you as the reader know that this is referencing Judgment Day for the Hebrew or Greek audience. It's a huge topic in the whole of the Bible, judgment, which is the second of the four last things. And for those of you taking notes, you will find references to this literally all over the Bible. Dozens and dozens and dozens of references to judgment. But I point you alongside of our scripture this evening to Romans chapters 2 and 3 and to Revelation chapter 20 if you're wanting to see how some of this stuff fills out a little bit. Now, there are always two different ways to hear teachings on judgment. We hear a teaching on judgment as one who longs for it or as one who is afraid of it. We hear it as one who welcomes it or one who does not want it at all. Those who long for it are crying out for justice, for God's decisive judgment to bear upon the world. And there are those of us who resist judgment because of our comfort or our evil which we commit in the world. I do suppose there's probably a third audience today, maybe in this room, which didn't exist 
in any substantial way 2,000 years ago. Today, some of us assume that maybe we can imagine a situation in which there just isn't any judgment at all. Like as if God could just be loving and not just. And beyond the absurdity of thinking that love could exist without justice is the sheer and startling fact that this idea can only really be maintained from a position of exceptional comfort and privilege in the world. From those of us who, for a few decades, can largely insulate ourselves from the realities of suffering and evil all around the globe. For the whole of human history, most of us have either longed for a righteous judgment or been terrified of judgment. And it may be helpful for you to check into your own response as you read the the, the teachings of judgment today or as you hear this today. Because you may hear this in two different ways and I think there's two different audiences intended. For those who are suffering from horrific evils, it is one of the great and awful thoughts which move us to despair. The idea that God doesn't see our suffering. Or worse, that He doesn't care. That He would just let it all go. How can we suffer in these ways and yet God is just silent This is the cry of most of our fellow human beings around the world throughout history, friends. And for us to say something like, well, I just don't like judgment, is to ignore the cry of most human beings throughout history. And so the saints of God cry out, how long, O God, until you make things right? For the suffering person, the promise of judgment brings hope. For those of us who resist suffering, it's often just terrifying either because we know that some manner of evil that we commit in our refusal to love others, or because we don't know that the one who sits on the throne is Jesus. We're terrified of judgment. And so judgment, you could say, brings comfort to the afflicted, or it brings affliction to the comforted. And tonight, I trust the same will be true in this room, that God will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted, Um, but there's hope for either of us, both of us and all of us. Our passage from Matthew 25 tonight is Jesus' final teaching before the week of his passion, which means the week of his suffering, namely the week that most Christians around the world celebrate this week, Holy Week, the build-up to his crucifixion on the cross. And right before this week, his final public teaching was on judgment in Matthew chapter 25. And it opens at the end of the world. Let's read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. So He says the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite title for Himself, okay? Uh, Kirsten preached a phenomenal sermon on this a number of years ago on our podcast if you want to look into that or you can just Google Um, but I recommend Kirsten's teaching on that. Um, But this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. So when he says the Son of Man was going to come in his glory and all the angels with him and, and he will sit on his glorious throne, Jesus is talking about himself. Here Jesus is claiming that he is going to come in glory and sit with angels on his glorious throne. These are the kinds of claims for which Jesus was killed. Because he made himself out to be God, to be divine. And there on the throne of all things, he says he is going to separate 
all people left from right. Let's continue in verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And now as an aside... Notice that the kingdom prepared for them before the foundations of the world, this kingdom that, that, that God did all of this in order, like all of this by he created the entire cosmos. He began something we call history. Things like physics exist. Every single one of us exists. Why? Because God had prepared a kingdom for us. That's why. God did all of this in order for you to inherit the kingdom which is prepared for you before the foundations of the world. Take heart, little children, for it is God's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. I would hold on to that promise out of Jesus' mouth even as we go through the rest of his teaching. It is his good pleasure to give you his kingdom. But what I want you to notice in this passage, because that was an aside, is notice the criteria Jesus is using to separate all people. It isn't their robust faith. It isn't their theology or their feelings that they have in their heart about God. It isn't even heroic acts of justice and faith according to the world's standards. Jesus doesn't say, I was in prison and you liberated me. If you know Jesus' very first sort of public exposition of the scriptures that we know of, he said he did come to liberate captives. He cares a ton about the liberation of captives. As a matter of fact, all of judgment is about the liberation of captives. But when he's separating people left from right, he doesn't say, you guys on the right, you get to be here because you liberated captives. He doesn't say that you solved all the problem of homelessness in a city. He simply says you saw someone who's sick and you visited them. Here Jesus says that it is the way that people have treated the least of these in these small little ways, these seemingly unassuming ways, which actually separates them. And perhaps some of you might be thinking right now, well, I thought, I thought it was um, by grace through faith that we're saved. Not what we do for the least of these. Or rightly so. That is how we're saved, by grace through faith. But if your faith is not manifested in action, the Bible says your faith is dead. And so what is the, and, and, and the question then is, what is the specific action then that we are supposed to be looking for to see faith alive? Friends, it's the four-letter word, which is the crowning ethic over all of Christian history. What is it? Somebody say it. Love. Yeah, there's a lot of four-letter words you know, I know. Love is the right answer, Okay. Uh, the summary of all of God's commandments is love. Here, perhaps in this judgment teaching, we see it more acutely, love toward the least of these. Love toward the least of these. Let's continue, verse 41. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, 
into the, oh, I'm reading too far. No, I'm not. Okay, great. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. First of all, note that he doesn't say eternal fire was prepared for you. The kingdom of God is prepared for you, not eternal fire. God has no desire for you to go there. We'll talk about hell in a couple weeks. Okay, but tonight, as we focus on judgment, why are some people on his left? Why must they depart from him? And again, it's because of how they treated the least of those in their midst. Those on the right, when they saw somebody sick, went to them. Those who were on the left didn't visit. This is what separates them. How they treated the least of these. So that's Jesus' teaching. And my question is, how in the freaking world is that hopeful? I suggest seven ways. First, as I've already said, you can take notes. I suggest you take notes. Okay. As I've already said, for those around the world who don't already have any hope that this life before death will get better. The overwhelming sweep of humanity throughout history has cried out for divine judgment to make things right. And so the fact that there will be a time when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, when every deed will be brought to light, when every word will be examined, when every motive will be made clear, when everyone will have to answer, everyone will have to answer for how they have lived their lives, how they have played the only hand they've been dealt. This gives hope to the poor and to the meek and to those who mourn and those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. Judgment day is when they will cry out with joy that God has actually seen them and he's heard their plight and he is not silent and he has indeed made all things right. There's hope for the poor in this. Second, did you notice the shocking hope we have as sinners? I would draw your attention to verse 40. Jesus suggests that even a single act of mercy will be responded to with mercy. It's almost as if Christ is searching through all the interactions that you've had in order to credit one as an act unto him. There's hope for we sinners because we have no clue how much the scales of mercy are tipped in our favor. Three. This image of judgment gives hope to those of us who have not done great things. Blessed are you who have not done great things. This isn't a list of tremendous accomplishments according to the world. These things Jesus mentions are available to all of us, regardless of your status in our culture, regardless of your personality type or your gender or your IQ or your height or your psychological well-being. There's hope because Jesus doesn't measure things like we do. And what he's looking for is available to all people at all times and in all places. How are you loving the least of these in your midst? Those who are hungry and thirsty and poor and sick and in prison, they are all around us. They are in this room. 
And if they are here, so too is Jesus. And you can love him by loving them. Fourth, there's hope for those of you who ask the question, well, what about all the people who've never heard of Jesus? Well, here's your passage, friends. Here's your passage. Wherever someone is a stranger, wherever someone is thirsty, wherever someone is hungry, wherever someone is in prison, there too is Jesus Christ. There's hope for anyone who hasn't heard the gospel because Jesus has decided to be present with the poor. And he delights to credit our treatment of them as our treatment of him. Fifth, Jesus judging all things and bringing all things to light liberates, those, liberates us from the need to exercise vengeance. We should pray and we should work for justice in and through God-given offices which exist to execute it. But the reality is that almost all injustice and evil in the world seems to go unanswered. That has been true since Genesis chapter 3. And if we don't think that every evil will be addressed, we will want to take it upon ourselves to address it how we can or we will despair. Because if we don't think evil is going to be undressed and then we just ignore it, there's a second kind of injustice that happens. Do you see that? If I see something is unjust and then I decide I'm not going to do anything about it and nothing's going to happen with it, then there's a second kind of injustice that happens in letting it go. And there are ways that we ought to be working for injustice and working for justice. It is primarily and thoroughly through what we call offices, not taking all the law into our own hands all the time. But when you know that there is nothing hidden which will not come to light, and you hear the command of God saying, vengeance is mine, do not repay evil for evil, it can liberate us from the pressure of having judgment on our shoulders and the despair which comes from seeing so much evil go unanswered. Knowing Jesus will bring everything to light means knowing that nothing will ultimately be gotten away with and it can set us free from the felt desire and felt pressure to judge. Sixth, there's hope because Jesus is the judge. You might think, gosh, there's, how can there be a seventh after this? Or maybe you don't care, you want me to get through the list, but here we go. Um, Jesus is the judge. He is not just, and this is so important, this is like so core and central to Christian history, but for some reason it's surprising to many of us still, even if we've grown up in churches, okay? Jesus is not just pointing the way to another divine judge that we don't know. Judgment has been given to him by the Father and we know him. We know what he is like. We know how he treats people. He who commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us also loves his enemies and prays for those who persecute him. There's hope because we know who judges all things and he's told us what's required of us, namely that we love. Do you see the point here? Because some of us, I think, and this is really important for some of you if you've been confused about this, Christians have claimed the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. They're both really important for you to hold on to, okay? But when you forget that Jesus is divine, then of, then of course you're going to be terrified because you don't really know who you're going to encounter on the other side. But when Jesus looks towards judgment day, he says, you know who's going to be sitting on the throne? Me. Me. 
And he's saying this to people he's giving his life for. You do not have to wonder what he's like. You do not have to question the kinds of looks you'll see on his face or the tenor that he brings to situations or his posture towards communities. You can literally look at his interactions in history and know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you can count on that Jesus being on the throne. He's a very good judge, far better than you or me. Seventh, finally, there's reason to hope because we know God cares about every human being he's made. Do you see this in our passage? We are not judged by whether we claim to be Christians or not, as if God ultimately cares about our religious checkboxes. What he cares about is how the poorest people in the world are treated. He aligns himself with them. He cares about people. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. If they're hungry, give them food. If they're naked, give them clothes. If they're strangers, give them welcome. If they're sick or imprisoned, for the love of God, literally visit them. It strikes me right now that some of you might be scandalized because of the exclusivity claims of the gospel, and I believe and I will celebrate that no one is saved except through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Jesus Christ our Lord has decided to be with the poor. This is his teaching. This is his teaching. And you might sit here sometimes, if you're looking at Jesus' teaching about judgment, you might be like, man, this is heavy, this is hard, whatever else. But, but imagine if you're not in this room and what you hear is those people over there in that room, you know what they're saying? They're saying that if their God is going to be pleased with them, they got to love me. How cool is it for the rest of the world if we hear Jesus' teaching on judgment? That we might be overly concerned about our own salvation. Jesus is trying to, I think he's effectively doing this. Jesus is addressing your own security in himself. And he's liberating you to stop worrying so much about your dang self. I'm not trying to shame you right now, friends. I'm saying this is literally the hope that he has. He's inviting you to be co-redeemers with him. To be co-heirs of the kingdom of God. I'm not even getting into this too much. But the Apostle Paul understands in Jesus' teaching that we also are going to share to some degree in judgment, not just being judged. He says that the church is going to participate in the judgment of angels. He is sharing with you far more than you know, and we spin our wheels a lot, worried that we're not okay with God. And he's trying in this, in this teaching on final things to go, I want you to care about the poor. I want you to care about those around you who are hungry right now your roommates and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your professors and your classmates, the people you walk by and see who are desperate and crying out for some justice in this world, maybe you can be an answer to it. Maybe you can be a bomb to their, maybe you can be a bomb in the midst of all of their heartache and their train wreck. My friends and I this week were talking about, a number of friends and I were talking about um, if there's really any satisfying answer to the problem of evil. And we were reflecting on how God responds to that question over and over again in the scriptures. And he never gives an answer. He never gives a satisfying answer. What he does do is he draws near to people in their suffering. You might not like that. I'm just saying, when you are in the midst of suffering, how satisfying is somebody's explanation to you? Like when you've suffered the death of someone you love, when you're suffering through loneliness and, you, and you, you suffer with all kinds of despair, when you're suffering with the ways in which you feel attacked by your very own body, and somebody goes, well, here's why. 
How helpful is that to you? It, it strikes me, and, and my friends and I were talking about this, it strikes me how powerful it is when somebody is um, so confident in, in their own security in God that they're willing to come into suffering rather than shy away from it because they're afraid of it. But that they're willing to enter into it and suffer alongside you without having to explain it away. You know? And, and maybe this is some of what God is wanting for those who are suffering in the world for his people is he wants us to send us out to draw near to people who are in the midst of... Just, just visit the prisoners. If somebody is sick, just go be near them. I'm not even asking you to make them well. Just go be with them. I find there's so much hope derived from Jesus' teaching on judgment. Hope for the oppressed. Hope for the oppressor. Hope that God sees all the little things that we do. Hope for the whole world, for salvation. Hope that we can be liberated from judgment. Hope for knowing the judge. Hope for knowing what he loves, namely who he loves, that is all people. And in the end, every teaching on judgment is intended to produce comfort or repentance, both of which carry their own messages of hope. So if you need a word of comfort, friend, know that God does have a final and full answer for your suffering. And if judgment is a hard word today, friend, it is not intended to condemn you or me. It is intended to wake us up to the purposes of love, to wake us from our sleep, to call to mind the hungry and the tired and the sick and the poor and those in prison around us even now. And I know that this can be a scary and heavy topic, but those are precisely the places where we need to find hope, right? The scary and heavy places. Hope that God is just, actually, and that evil will not go unanswered. Hope that God is merciful and can save us through judgment. Hope that in Jesus Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. Hope that the one we call Jesus is actually the one on the throne over all things and the one before whom all history will stand. Christian, what is your hope? Our hope is that we belong body and soul in this life and the next to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's take a minute um, because we're doing something different tonight. Um, we're, not, we're not doing um, the, the Lord's table this evening. I've, we just decided we're just one sacrament's enough for our Tuesday nights. Uh, so, um, so we're gonna do some baptism tonight. So we're gonna do something a little different. We're just gonna spend a minute and I want you to... to um, just spend some time in prayer and ask the Lord if there's something he wants you to respond to him in. Is there a way in which he's trying to bring comfort and he's asking you to trust him that he will, he will make all things well and all manner of things well? Or is there a way in which God is trying to rouse you from sleep and maybe you've thought that the thing which makes you in with him is like, I don't know, putting a Christian fish on your car or something. I'm trying to use something silly, Okay. I don't want you guys to feel judged in this way. But I mean, that, I don't think anybody thinks that they're in because of that. I hope not. But um, if you do put a Christian fish in your car, please drive really well. Anyway, let's, I digress. Um, but maybe, maybe what you need to hear is like what God cares about is actually how your faith is alive and active and how you love those around you. And so how might God be trying to wake you up tonight? Or how might God be trying to bring comfort into your life through this teaching?